Before we start today's episode, we just wanted to give a really special shout out to our new true crime podcast friends from the South at Girls on the Couch podcast. Caitlin and Lauren are hilarious. I just listened to their most recent episode on Amy Bishop. And if you like our stuff, you're definitely going to like theirs too. So definitely be sure to check them out at Girls on the Couch podcast. And without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hi, friends. I'm Olivia. And I'm Katie. And we are Podcast by Proxy. Welcome. Nice. I did good. Did you do good? I think we did good. But I like record the Zoom though. There we go. Nailed it. Hey. Snailed it. Okay, so we are switching up our style. Repertoire. We're switching up. <laughs> We're just switching up how we usually do it. We each researched half of this case. And so Katie's gonna tell you the first part and I'm gonna close it off and then maybe we'll have a little chitty chatty at the end. Maybe. Just a little. We'll see how long it takes. It's it's a long one. Yeah. Like I told you just before we hit record, I'm going to try to limit my portion because my portion is more his backstory and his life. And I don't want to give him too, too much attention or credit because that's not what this is about. No, it's <clears throat> not. Do we want to make any adjustments to this case prior to reading our stories? <laughs> our stories. <laughs> so, well, we both wrote our scripts using the killer's name should we say it yeah i mean i think Um, we'll give you the name that you guys probably would know the case as as well as obviously the guy's name but moving forward he ain't worth it no so we're doing today the toronto van attack it's alec manassian is that how you pronounce his name yeah manassian yeah yeah, so we're just gonna call him John. Yeah, we're gonna just Ms. leave him with Mr. a John Doe. Doe and we'll come back to this point. Yeah, I don't wanna make him too exciting and you know, whatever. So take Toast. it away, Katie. Okay. Okay. We're just gonna jump right in. We've decided that nobody cares about our chit chat at the beginning, so here we go. No, I'm just trying to make sure there wasn't like anything <laughs> important to follow up on but I don't think think there is and if so we'll uh, table that for later parking lot so we'll perhaps in the our drink break yes I love me a drink break okay gotta love drink break okay here we go the Toronto van attack yes so let's talk about Alec first so you understand who he is and then we will lead up to Olivia's segment he was born in November 3rd, 1992, to parents Vahi and Sona. I hope those are pronounced properly. And he did have one brother. His dad was a senior software engineer at Rogers. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's a major telecom company here, primarily in the East Coast in Canada. So Sona, his mom, she, as we move forward and learn about the case, you'll see that she actually ended up having to leave her job 
but she had a job at it was called Campugen, and it just listed that she left for obvious reasons in air quotes. Yeah. Okay. Obvious reasons? Yeah, well, I mean, once we get past your segment, those are the obvious reasons. Oh, I understand. Yeah. <clears throat> wow, I really did not get there very fast. No. I also don't <laughs> think you were really paying attention. <laughs> I, was, I just posted something on our Instagram story, so I was looking at it quickly, but I will be <laughs> tuned in for the rest of this. Perfect. I got you now. That's all that matters. My time management was poor today. Sorry, folks. Eh, It happens. We both have full-time jobs and lives, as everyone can understand right now, the weird work from home. So we're rolling with the punches as well. Yeah. 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 You got my undivided now. I'm here. Boom. Perfect. So he grew up on Elmsley Drive throughout the 1990s. He lived in a two-story red brick house in Richmond Hill near the David Dunlop Observatory. His parents bought the house for 330000 and it was a quiet middle-class neighborhood, from all we know. Okay. Also, I am apologizing for the page-flipping sounds. I'm kicking it old school today, and I went with just old pen and paper for my notes today. It felt right. So there's going to be the odd <laughs> paper right. flip. Yeah, it did. It did. It felt better than when you used your phone. Oh, yeah. That was a disaster. And I just prefer not to have the notes on my computer all the time. So. Anyway, okay. his neighbor, uh, 77-year-old Wesley Mack, said that he had a hard time making eye contact and he needed a lot of extra attention from his parents. So all okay. throughout his life, he noticed that. It was clear that the entire family struggled with Alec's mental health overall. It wasn't just that Alec was odd he would say it was that he could see the like ins and outs of each day how much of a toll it took on all the members of the family even his brother yeah like just difficult in general to deal with and yeah and like he said even he didn't even specify that he needed a lot of extra attention when he was young it was all throughout his life he needed a lot of extra attention and that's just Mm -hmm. the way he was So he attended the 16th Avenue Public School and then went on to Thornley Secondary School on Highway 407 in Thornhill. His parents struggled to help him and they relied on a lot on a company called Helpmate. And they were they were like a public outreach, it sounds like, who helped with families struggling to help their child or family member with mental health issues. And this was around the same time that he got diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. Okay. So his, so they were trying, though. They were trying. It's just they didn't know what to do. So it kind of sounds like they put it onto someone else a little bit, which isn't fair. But it, that was the norm in the 90s. There was just not a lot of information. We didn't really know what mm-hmm. was going on. And at the time, he was actually doing quite well with Helpmate. Like, it was showing improvements. He was kind of coping and then they were losing funding so he was kind of losing time with the company and losing support because they were at risk of just shutting all together which is something we hear every day that all too often yeah exactly and it's just like these outreach companies just are not able to keep helping people yeah which is anyways That's a whole other shouldn't be that difficult to get. Yeah, I was going to say it just shouldn't be that difficult to get those kind of resources, but that's for another day. Yeah. So Shannon Gold, who's now 25, she was a classmate of his, and this was in grade five. 
she said that he was really prone to like massive tantrums and acting out really badly so clearly at a young age he was already struggling within himself so that poor kid asperger's is now considered to be like on the autism spectrum yeah yeah i'll get to that okay because they do go into it a little bit with the autism foundation and stuff so we'll get into that in a second okay so in middle school he was in a special ed class that was called learning strategies and he had physical tics and visibly special needs stemming from some type of disability and the members of the school were shocked to find out later on in life that he ever got a driver's license or was able to do any of these things because they really thought that there would be limitations on him yeah, it was really interesting. So he, he was having a hard time then if they were surprised that he was basically like a functioning member of society. Yeah, and they seemed to feel that, again, like his tics and like these outbursts that he would have, people truly felt that he would not be able to maybe be as functional member of society in whatever mm. capacity that would mean to them. Yeah, um, what that looks like, yeah. Yeah, but there was visible struggles that he had day to day that people truly felt he would not be able to achieve certain things in life. And I mean, that's amazing for him if he's overcome those obstacles. I'm not knocking him for that. I was shocked to find out that people felt he had those limitations. Yeah. Because from everything I had known before this. From everything everything that I read from where my research kind of starts on, that's surprising to me. Yeah. From what my impression was of this and what I found out, I was like, oh, It's a very Hmm. different person than I thought he was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You never learned how to functionally yawn with your mouth closed? Well, I don't want to make that face you made last week. (laughs) It works. I know how to do it, but that was like when as you know, when you sneeze back to back to back and you just can't control anything about it sometimes, it was like a yawn like that. I did it once and I was fine. And then it just kept going and going. So to be able to breathe, I just had to, never mind. It feels better to just yawn. Anyway, keep going. Okay, that is that's surprising to me. So he Me too. So yeah. He was struggling a lot more than than I Yeah, definitely. Or like this the, his symptoms or his behavior was a lot more severe, I guess, at that age than I originally thought. Like I knew there was stuff yeah. going on, but And that was I just middle school. Was at that least. Yeah, like yeah, middle okay. school's already super difficult and we can see this progression where he went from tantrums and acting out to now visible tics and more like physical responses to his mental struggles a lot of them said that he would never they they never thought he could get a driver's license nonetheless rent a van in high school he would fidget twitch tap his head he would hug himself really hard he would meow he would spit on himself and then repeat the phrase, I'm afraid of girls, and yell it just for no reason. Yeah. I know, like, I'm not an expert by any means, but I do know, like, a few things just from reading. And I know that, especially kids with autism, they're so oversensitive to stimuli. So I almost wonder if they'll hit themselves because they're trying to silence the things in their brain and so I almost wonder if like the hitting himself was just that's normal behavior for somebody with like extreme who's having an extreme moment with that 
my next no. note here is literally another student who is three years younger than him named Kyle Echowitz. He said it's called stimming, so for, like, stimulating, Mm. and it's a form of self-soothing by stimulation. It's to quiet your world and lower senses, and he doesn't remember Alec, really, so he couldn't really give an opinion about how he perceived his coping mechanisms because of the age gap. They were about three years apart in school, so he just didn't know him, but he... Look at me, I know things. You do know things. Look at you. I didn't have that written down. That was just, that's just knowledge in my brain. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sometimes smart. Sometimes. We both sometimes (laughs) smart. We both. Uh, Kyle, the student, and the Canadian Association for Autism, they were both really concerned that this being even associated with his name would put a really bad association to autism because Mm -hmm. it's actually people with autism are actually far less likely to hurt people or are equally as likely to hurt people as anybody else. There is no proof that they are more likely to be violent. Yes, they're more likely to have outbursts. Do those result in violence all the time? No. No, if anything people with autism and other disorders, mental disorders, anything like that, are more prone to being victim of crime, not the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. But I do, we are going to talk about that a lot more in depth, so. Yeah. Kyle also mentioned that he felt like people in their community and people around their area and their school were severely under-supported in the process of moving from high school to post-secondary education. They felt like there should be more of a support system in place to help them in the real world, as opposed to just assisting with their mental skills, so to speak, or their mental exercises, depending on what their specific curriculum or program is designed for. I think there is now. But there was not then. No, like now we have like silent rooms and sensory programs and we have a lot more tailored programs. We don't just have special ed class. And that's the only reason why I'm calling it that is because it was so generalized when we went to school. And I just feel like there was nothing tailored to their needs unless it was specifically health related, like care. Yeah. So, yeah. But again, another topic. People in high school (laughs) said that he was severely and socially and mentally disabled according to them and keep in mind kids in high school are mean but they were specifically saying to a disability it was visible but then when he got to college people said he was nervous and he was a super fast learner he had a knack for computers he was quiet he was shy kind of kept to himself and like i said really nervous but otherwise just a really smart guy so probably just like anybody else in college (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, people in high school are not nice. No. And take only, take only your negative traits and run with them and then identify you based on them. That's maybe a big stereotype, but I didn't, I wasn't the popular kid in high school, so. Oh, me <laughs> So I, I mean, I can obviously see, based on what you were saying, the behaviors he was exhibiting, how definitely people are going to be saying that he... There was something going on, but mm-hmm. knowing that he was at, in college and he was maybe just more reserved, anxious. Well, he likely are. was bullied, and that brings out a yeah. lot more of oh, those for sure. visible like responses. 
So I think that when he got to college, it was everybody he didn't know or a lot of people he didn't. And he got to kind of hit the reset button. Yeah, it's so much easier. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. And okay. at that point, he signed up for the military. Oh. Yeah. This guy had a busy a life before this. That's a big switch, though. It is. It's huge. But it's very structured. And that might be what he needs. Yeah. So who knows? So the defense minister, Harji Sajan, said that there was no red flags at all through his enrollment, through all his applications. He struggled with basic training because he's really difficult when it comes to taking direction. He frequently... Well, and this was the thing. He frequently just didn't understand the instructions. So then he would just, like, fumble and get confused, and then he'd get in shit for it. So it wasn't like he didn't want to follow them. He literally did not understand them. Well, and there's no adaptive learning in the military. You either get it or you don't get it. And so you fall in line. Yeah, you either Mm -hmm. conform or you don't. And so if you have this layer of you learn so much differently it yeah i could see that that would not last that long that long totally it was really difficult or could could not last that long i'm not saying that you couldn't do it but yeah other recruits said they knew that he had something he had mentioned in passing like that there was something he had or that a condition he may have or something but he never told them what eventually he decided it was not a fit for him. He ended up leaving the military. He was not adaptable Mm. enough for it. It just was not a fit. Yeah, if it's not for you, it's not for you. You tried. Good job, buddy. Stuff isn't for everybody. Everything isn't for everybody. That goes for anything and everything. Yes, but you should try it. And if it's not for you, Mm -hmm. then you respectfully step away from it and try something else. Yep. Yep. We call that a non-fit. Yeah. Okay, keep going. I digress. So he went to, I hope this is how you say it, Seneca College. Is that how you say it? I think it's Seneca, yeah. Seneca? Seneca. I think Seneca would have to have two C's, but I think because there's an E and only one C, it's Seneca. Okay. So he went to that college (laughs) from 2011 to 2018 in New York City. If you went there, I'm sorry. It sounds lovely, I'm sure. I don't know. His classmate, Joseph Chan, he claimed that he took a four-month class with him. He ended up presenting his group presentation alone because so many people dropped the class that a lot of people did it alone, it seems like. But... (laughs) Count your lucky stars if you get to do your group project alone. Right? Oh, God. (laughs) He ended up presenting alone, and this Joseph guy said, like, he knew his material. He was super on point, never used notes. He's super intelligent. Like, it, he was shocked. Yeah. <laughs> but again, people on the spectrum are underratedly, I'm going to make that a word today, in- incredibly intelligent. And Definitely. people don't realize it. They are wildly smart because their brains just work in different ways than ours do. And Isn't that what a beautiful mind I've, is about? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So everyone go watch The Beautiful Mind. A Beautiful Mind. Yeah, okay. Keep going. I'm just like... Back to this. Yes. So over the years, just to lend to his character as a young adult and late teens, he had many jobs over the years. He was a quality assurance developer. He developed software for an online wine company. It sounds like for online shopping for wine. He did an IT co-op for students. 
at the Ontario Municipal Employee Pension Plan Services. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then he also worked for Two Good Financial System. Everybody else that worked with him, including another person that was supposed to be in that group project with him that like did work on it for a bit with him, they said he was very nervous but very bright. He was cordial, business-like, and he was a very responsible group member. Okay. Yeah. He came back, right. Okay, so he yeah. went to the military, he came back, he went to college, group project, got it. Yeah. April 19th now, we are just days before the day. He sent a message to the former group project people, which was just kind of odd. And it was like, finally finished college, fuck you all, good riddance. That was it. Oh. That was, yeah, That's... just in a group text. Like, peace out, homies. For for that. Mic drop. Like, what? Yeah. Fuck you all. I guess I won't see you at the cap and gown ceremony. He wasn't. Yeah, that's going to be awkward at the 10 year reunion. A little bit. Mm -hmm. Hey, buddy, remember how you left that group text? How could I forget? Weird. Okay. And that's the end of my segment. Because now we're two days before the attack, so. Okay, okay, okay. Give me a minute. Sorry, just give me one second. So you left off on April 19th. 2018 that's correct yeah and then he's like sent a group text and was like goodbye fuckers yeah and then he's pretty much radio silence from everything i could hear from there wait i'm thirsty so oh drink break break. i'm having a reese cup for drink break i'm having a coke zero what else do i drink oh of course you are i have water but i want a snack for drink break i mean so would i but i don't have anything in here Mm -hmm. i have a granola bar but it's too loud this is real life, people. Really is. I'm in my bedroom. Bye. Not luxurious. Uh, I had a really good quesadilla for dinner, though. Nobody cares, but I just wanted to. And a veggie like, burger. You know. Oh, yeah. I have another one, one waiting for me things. after. What? Two burgers? And Where I have from? just a patty. They're like the Morning Star Chipotle black bean patties. Ooh, so, the like, they're not big. I'm... Yeah, I just have an extra patty made for later with cheese on it. I haven't had one of those in so long, but did I tell you I'm obsessed with the salmon burgers from Costco now? Oh, I switched over to the yes. salmon ones. They're, They're I'm obsessed so with them. Good. I just cover them in mustard, and it's heinous. Oh, heinously good. So, it's so good. So April 23rd, 2018. This is a few days after he sends some ludicrous group Racy text messages. <laughs> by fuckers to his entire okay whatever man so it's between like 12 30 and one o'clock and he shows up at rider van rentals it's like a rental van company to pick up yeah to pick up a van that he had actually put on hold like three weeks prior he had told the company that he was a local student and he needed the van to move furniture because he was moving soon. Staff said that they noticed that he was kind of behaving uncomfortable, like looking over his shoulder, but whatever. He's just some kid coming to pick up a rental van. So he signs the papers and the employee hands him the keys and everything. And then they say that he goes into the van in the parking lot and sits there for like 20 minutes. And it's just kind of weird because he's just sitting there. And... (laughs) 
So one of the employees who had given him the keys and, like, made him sign the papers actually came out because they noticed that he was in there for a while and was like, hello, do you need help? You know, maybe he can't figure out how to turn it on or who knows. But they were, like, weird that he's been sitting outside. Like, 20 minutes is a long time to just be sitting in your car. We all, I'm sure, sit in our cars in the driveway when we get home from wherever listening to our music. I'm like, 20 minutes is a long time. Yeah. We all do it, but yeah, 20 it's minutes a, is a lot. Talk to my mom for 20 minutes in the parking lot of my visitor lot all the time. <laughs> Not like shocking that this lady went out and was like, hey, do you need help though? Yeah. Because like it's still, totally. you know, kind of long. And then so he apparently asked if she could teach him how to put it into park and said that he wasn't used to like newer model vehicles. So maybe he doesn't have a so driver's did... license. No, he maybe. rented the van. He would have had to. Yeah, he would have had to with the... I was going to say, they don't say that anywhere, but I think it was just because he needed a cover as to why he was sitting there for so long. Like, he just didn't want to seem suspicious because he was being suspicious suspicious. and had anxiety through the roof, probably. Yeah. So, at that point, she did. He left. And this is when he drives towards Young Street and Finch Avenue. Mm Mm-hmm. At about 1.22 p.m., he drove his van deliberately, like on purpose, onto the sidewalk of Young Street, and he just kept driving. He just basically bulldozed the sidewalk. And he said, quote, I knew it would be a busy area, and when I saw lots of pedestrians, I decided to go for it. That's why he said he chose Young Street. Yeah, and he said, I just forwarded it. He killed 10 people and he injured multiple people. Well, 16 that we know of for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, people said that they could tell that he was like purposefully turning the van to hit people. And like they could see him turning it towards people. You're going to hear my page because I'm also reading off paper notes right now. So he actually drives back on the road briefly and then hops the curb again and the 911 call came in at 1.25 p.m. And the police responded immediately. So he literally plowed over, like, the bus stops, poles, everything. There is, like, just a scene. There's stuff everywhere. Like, a scene from a freaking movie. Yeah, and I listened to the, the Nightline podcast about it. And it is a Canadian podcast. And the one guy works in the building right on that street. So he had, like, first-hand oh. account of... He was, like, sending pictures at first because he, he didn't realize what it was or how bad it was. So he was like, holy, look at all these cops outside. Yeah, like, and, what like, is that? And, like, sending it to his yeah. friend. Yeah, so it's, like, first-hand account. So if anyone wants to hear that after this, I highly recommend checking it out. That's... Yeah, it's just so crazy. So Toronto Services Constable Ken Lamb responded to the scene, and he actually came across the van damaged and a man who was... Mr. John Doe standing by the driver's side door outside of the van. Constable Ken Lamb approaches, but he notices he has something in his hand. Mm-hmm. And so he took his weapon out, like a pull, took it out in response to seeing that. Now he's essentially potentially got like a hostile situation that he's going to have to like yeah, negotiate. Yeah. yeah. And so the, I guess I'm just going to say Alex or Manassian. He's yelling at him, shoot me in the head. And he keeps asking the constable to shoot him in the head. Yeah, he's saying, kill me, kill me. Yeah, kill me, kill me. Yeah, and then it's at this point that Officer Lamb actually realizes he's holding a wallet and not a gun. Mm -hmm. 
but I mean, he had no choice but to, you know, go to the worst case scenario in that point and assume. And we'll find out that that's what he should have done later. Well, he should have done it. We know that anyway, but you know what I mean? There's more to that. This police officer, though, like my hat goes off to him. He did an amazing job. Yeah, he got massive praise for his, like, unviolent handling Mm -hmm. of this situation and how well he handled it. Because, you know... Did you hear why he didn't have a fake weapon on him? No. I heard in his interrogation, they were like, why didn't you take, like, a plastic gun with you? Or why didn't you have a weapon with you or something like that? And he goes, well, I was going to bring a toy gun, but I was worried that when I rented the car, they would check my pockets. Oh, my God. Right? And he said that he only stopped the van because he got coffee on the windshield and didn't know how to get it off, which means he didn't know where the windshield wipers were. Yep, correct. He did not. He, I was, yeah, I was going to get there, but yeah, that is the only reason he stopped the van. No, that's okay. I'm reading off these notes anyway. This part's a little bit messy. But basically the officer like, reupholsters his gun, starts to reason with him, asks him to get asks him to get on the ground, and he realizes that he's done at this point, so he complies. Yeah, he and... just kind of charges him at a certain point because he realized the guy can't do anything, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so that's the next part I have here. He said, he said the only reason that he stopped was because somebody's drink spilled on his windshield, and he thought he was going to crash. Yeah, so he was worried he about the van already... and him. Yes, correct. He was concerned that he was going to crash if he had gone um, any further. So nine people died at the scene. A tenth died at the hospital that evening and another 16 were injured. Yeah. So we'll talk more about the victims later. So hours after he was arrested, Alex told Toronto Police Detective Rob Thomas in a four-hour taped interview where Katie's watched a bunch of it. How are you feeling? Feeling good. You feeling okay? My name's Rob Thomas. Nice to meet you. How are you? How are you? You doing okay? Yeah. Yeah, you probably have better days than this, I guess, eh? Yeah. yeah. Well, I am yeah. a little shaken, to be honest. You're a little shaken? No. Like, it's not my usual day, obviously. Yeah, yeah, no, I can appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I honestly didn't go out of my way to do too much of that. I, it's I think hard. I got- I did so much reading and I did watch a little bit and it's really difficult. Like, I I can get enough just from, like, 30 seconds of hearing this motherfucker's voice. I get it. I I got there. Yeah. So he told him that he communicated with two mass murderers who were motivated by incel ideology and said that hearing of their massacres actually inspired him to carry out his own and he decided to rent out the van as a weapon on Young Street that day. Incels is a term that comes up a lot in this part of the case. Actually, when I told my dad that I was writing this one, he he said, oh, the incel killer. So I guess that's how he was known at the time. But the term incel is short form for involuntary celibates. And it's essentially now an online brotherhood or like community of men who consider themselves to be exactly that, involuntarily celibate. So basically they're saying it's all our fault that they can't get laid seriously this is the thing they yeah the chads they say they're i on it right i i was just like what they say they're unsuccessful in their romantic attempts with women they often express extreme feelings of misogyny and hatred because of this it's essentially just a big form of mad babies crying and blaming women for their problems so yeah yeah they can't lose their virginity women refuse to sleep with them so it's our fault um 
I, I've done a little bit of um, uh, reading, and I know a little bit about um, involuntary uh, celibacy. Celibacy, right? So being celibate, involuntarily yes. celibate. What does that mean? That means an celibacy means uh, uh, someone who never perform has a sexual intercourse. Right. Uh, involuntary celibacy means this wasn't your choice. I you see. essentially are uh, have been thrown into true forced loneliness and you're unable to lose your virginity. Right. This is especially uh, painful for uh, young males. Right, right, right. That makes sense. So explain to me this movement. What's this movement about? It's basically it's basically a movement of angry uh, incels such as myself who are unable to get laid, therefore we want to overthrow the uh, chads, mm -hmm. which would uh, force the Stacys to be forced to uh, reproduce with the incels. Right, right, okay. Yeah, but Maybe like don't you be a piece of time shit. doing this, so. Yeah, like, you know, I'm not, I don't want to spend my time with somebody who's spending their time doing this. So he said of other murderous incels, quote, we discussed our frustrations at society and being unable to get laid. <laughs> you said that earlier. And I will say, like... in every video I watch, that is the terminology he uses when speaking to this very professional detective who is just lovely to him. He literally says, guys who can't get laid, over and over again to him. It's so hard to listen to. It's like listening to your 14-year-old boyfriend or 16-year-old boyfriend meet your dad and talk to him for the first time, and he just puts his foot in his mouth. Okay, I don't have this written in my in my notes, but I know for a fact because I watched it. The part where he, the detective asks him, "Are you suffering from any illnesses?" and he says, "Yeah, I'm a murderous piece of shit." Oh my god! Some of the stuff that comes. Out I shouldn't of this be laughing, mouth, but I was though. just like, my face. I couldn't even take him seriously at all in any. In and any I agree. Like we shouldn't laugh because I don't know the line between no. his mental health and him being a piece of yes. shit. Because there is a line yeah. of what he cannot control. But this is a train he jumped on and went with. So I don't feel that. Yeah, bad. and you murdered ten people. So true. Yeah. So the four-hour police video interview was actually held under a publication ban until September 27, 2019, and it was that day that an Ontario... Oh, sorry, well, it was August of that year that an Ontario court judge, judge lifted the publication ban on the video as well as a lengthy transcript. The people of Toronto so, were so happy. Yeah, they really okay. were. And it, it took a while. So the publication ban was lifted or was said to be lifted in August, but it wasn't actually lifted till September because they were giving them time to appeal the decision, his defense okay. team, and they they never did, so it just got lifted. But okay. he told police the day of his arrest, so the day of the attack, that he found the incel forums after being rejected by women in 2012 and at a Halloween party in 2013. He stated he first began to feel radicalized when Elliot Roger killed six people and injured 14 near a university campus in Isla Vista, California, mm -hmm. prior to killing himself. So this occurred in 2014, which was four years before the van attack. He claims... He he claimed at the time that he had actually been exchanging private messages with Elliot on Reddit from <laughs> January 
2014 until three days before the Isla Vista attack in May. He was like, we were besties. Duh. And then the other mass murderer he claims to have been in contact with, I say claims because I, I, I don't know that I buy it, is Chris Harper Mercer, who shot nine people and wounded eight inside a classroom at Pac... Is it Pacwa? Do you know? You don't know. Community College in Roseburg, Oregon in October 2015. So these were just all claims made by him during the interview. These are not proven facts, but like also cool heroes. No, they were, they were proven to be false. I read it. They were proven to be false. Yeah. I watched a little clip and someone did state that they were proven false like way later. So yeah, it just wasn't updated. I bet. So he wasn't even talking to them. He was just like, yeah, no, yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So, so he said all of this though. Oh yeah. It's like in the four hour thing you can listen to. No problem. Yeah, so remember how I said that he was sitting in the van for, like, 20 minutes before that employee came out and was like, yo, what are you doing? Pep talk? The thing that he was doing... Huh? Was he giving himself a pep talk? Yeah, he was giving himself a TED talk. No, he was sitting in the van in the parking lot. He posted to his Facebook, like, a final post, pledging allegiance to the incel rebellion praising Elliot Roger, who he considered to be the rebellion's founding father. So, yeah, that's what he was doing. It was his final, like, pledge to... When the police asked him about that, too, he was like, the only important things in there are incel, Elliot Rogers, and one other thing. Yeah, yeah. Not even his own name. People know they can masturbate. Do they know that, though? Do people know they can masturbate? Is that what you just said? Do Do these people know that they can masturbate? Oh, probably not. They like to, like, really suffer. Man, just, you know. Anyways, that, whatever. That's just the only thing that I can think of is just, do, you know, do yeah. what you need to do. Just take care just of your own self. You are a strong, independent man. You don't need no woman. <laughs> anyway, no. Said no one ever. <laughs> Said literally no one ever. <laughs> Said every man and no woman ever. Okay. So he says after the attack by Roger, like by Elliot Roger, after he... He carried out his big grandioso murderous attack. He, yeah, he began thinking and daydreaming about taking action of his own. And that's when he started to spend a lot more time on, this is when he says he starts to spend a lot more time on incel related online forums. And again, this is about four hours prior. So he tells the Toronto police that while he was engaging in these activities and forums for four-ish years, the planning of this particular event did not occur until about a month prior. Like basically when he booked that van, it didn't, okay. he hadn't thought about about his own event until then. He, <laughs> he told the police, and I quote, that he decided on a 10-foot van because it would be big enough, be big enough to have an effect, but not too big that I can't maneuver with it. Then he says the van was the perfect medium size to use as a my weapon. Yeah, and he uses so many different terms for the interviews. Like, I think he uses the word, like, the vessel or, like, the device. He's so clinical. Yeah, you know, okay, Yeah. Carry on. So at this point, he told the police that he chose April 23rd specifically because he was wrapping up his bachelor's degree in software development and felt it would be more symbolic if he had completed his schooling first. Responsibilities. 
Uh, yeah, nobody thinks this is symbolic except for you. He tells police he drove around for about 20 to 30 minutes from the Ryder rental van place, which we talked about, and it brought him to the Young and Finch Street area with only the one thought in his mind. I have some quotes in here by him, but I, I almost don't even want to continue to put them in because I feel like we all get the point. Like for this one, he says, at this point, I'm thinking this is it. This is the day of retribution. Now, what are you thinking while you're in the van? Uh, I'm thinking that this is it. This is the day of retribution. Okay. And uh, anything else in your mind? Just that. That's okay. that, that's the only thing that's in my mind. It's just burning in my mind. Burning in your mind. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so let me ask you this, because this is really interesting. Why do you choose Young and Finch? I, I didn't choose Young and Finch in particular. I was driving down Young because I knew it would be a busy area. It's so bonkers. It's it's something. <laughs> oh, so at this point, he admits that he had intended to die by suicide by cop and details his repeated attempts to have Constable Lamb shoot him by holding his wallet like a gun and telling Lamb that he had a gun in his pocket, but that the officer called his bluff. And like we said, Constable Lamb was widely praised for his nonviolent handling of this arrest. And and then at this point, Manassian tells police that although he didn't kill as many people as he wanted, he felt as though he had accomplished the mission. That's his first interview. So yeah, he tells police, though he didn't kill as many people as he wanted he felt he had accomplished the mission so that's his first interview that's three hours after so that's his that's the attack we kind of went over what happened his arrest and this is his first interview so this is kind of where it gets complicated though three months later august of 2018 he speaks with a forensic psychiatrist dr john bradford and tells him a completely different story he says that most of the what he had said in the police interview was a complete fabrication according to interview notes that were revealed in court in november of 2020 he said that the halloween rejection never happened he never spoke to mass shooters elliot roger and chris harper mercer he said that he was not and was never radicalized by the incel movement, and he stated that he did not want to start an incel rebellion, but that his real motivation was extreme anxiety, his fear of failing at the job he was supposed to start a week after the, t the attack, and he also told him that he preferred people to think he was an incel. So, like, basically, I preferred this great title, and it's a lot cooler than just having extreme anxiety. So he just wanted a different narrative. In the interview. That was it, apparently. Yeah, he was just trying to write his own story is basically what he's saying now. Okay. So, yeah, kind of to that same point in the interview, Dr. Bradford did write that Manassian said that he felt it would be energizing to be identified as an incel killer and be on a list with others, including Roger. So now it sort of feels like his interview with this doctor or the psychiatrist that he is saying, no, I just did that all for attention. That was all for, you know, show. It would be really energizing. It would be really exciting to be that, but I'm actually this. So now we're like, what? Okay. The next month, so mid-September of 2018, he talks to another psychiatrist who's Rebecca Chohan, Dr. Rebecca Chohan, and he tells her that he was deliberately, or sorry, that as he was running people down with the van, he wished for more female victims. And she claims that he told her that he felt unhappy 
about what he did, but, or sorry, he felt happy about what he did and that it was worth it. That's one thing I never understood so. about this attack is because it seemed like it was directed towards women and a specific type of yeah, man. Yeah, but it would have... But then he just feel like down it whoever. I was going to say, based on how it went, there's no way that he would have... I mean, maybe he was turning the van one way or another to try and... If he could see, like, a woman here and a man here, he's going to turn left to hit the woman. But like, I don't see how there's any way that he could have really planned for that. He's just mowing no. over random people on a sidewalk. No, I think that's why I would have expected ah. something like this, like a spree killing, to be a lot more like a shooter or something. But yeah. again, that's yeah, just no, this what was we're just... used to seeing. That's all. This was just like, he didn't even pre-plan that area specifically. He just kind of, while he was driving around in that 20, 30 minutes after he left the rental van place, was like, hey, I think that place would probably be pretty populated. Let's drive that way. Like, it wasn't yeah. even that pre-planned. No, he said that so, to police uh, even. I remember you saying that, and I remember hearing it, that yeah. he was just like, no, I just know that Young Street was really busy that time of day, so I thought I'd head in that direction. It was so yeah. casual, the way he said it. So, yeah, so he has these, like, couple different interviews with different psychiatrists that are conflicting, and then he did also have a couple more interviews with the the first guy dr john bradford on that i couldn't find the dates but like on other dates there was multiple interviews or like meetings with this guy and he at that at those times he did continue to maintain that he was an incel he was influenced by the incel movement elliot rogers specifically and that he also was looking for fame like infamy and notoriety. so like you know which one is it i kind of believe that it's a little bit of everything i think that the incel community gave him something to be a part of it you know gave him other people to relate to to gave him like an online community but it really just pointed him in the wrong direction yeah he felt like he was part of something bigger but unfortunately the thing he chose or felt relatable to was a really unhealthy yeah decision so it was yeah so it was in 2019 we kind of talked about it earlier but that the publication the his lawyer argued for a publication ban like on the interview any of the pre-trial documents that kind of stuff and his lawyer argued that allowing details to be published would taint potential witnesses, but the Ontario Superior Court Justice Anne Malloy disagreed, and she ruled in August of that year to lift the ban, like we said, and on her decision, she said, quote, it's hard to imagine a witness being called who will not already know that Mr. Manassian drove a van down a Toronto sidewalk, killing and injuring many people, which, like, fair. Everybody yeah, knows. who in Canada didn't know about it? Who in the North America didn't know about it? Like... <laughs> Yeah. He's charged with, and he pleads not guilty to 10 counts of first degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. And so this is kind of where we're going to get into the trial. Going into trial, his state of mind was basically the only focus because he had already admitted that he intended to kill all of his victims and that his actions were planned and deliberate. So there's no question about his intent to kill or if this is the question at this point exactly so we have to look at what state of mind he was in and so at this point him and his defense team this is kind of where the media blows up him and his defense team argue that he's not criminally responsible otherwise known as arguing ncr 
He said that his autism spectrum disorder rendered him unable to know that his actions were morally wrong. If this defense was successful, it would mean that he would get an indefinite stay in a hospital instead of a prison. And I am going to post more information about the not criminally responsible defense on our Instagram story at podcast by proxy. And if you're listening on like a different day that we don't drop this episode, I save them all to like a highlight. So you'll still be able to see it there. But the, so the Crown argued that Manassian was a mass killer who knew right from wrong and just happened to have autism. They're like, stop using this as an excuse, basically. Yeah, they were not having any of it. No, and honestly, neither were like autism advocates, experts, people with autism. Nobody was having it. So autism advocates and experts have still to this day stressed that autism, like you said earlier, is not associated with violence or criminal behavior. No, anyone is capable of being violent if you just happen to have a condition of any kind or be on the spectrum in any way that is not why you were violent yeah well and having a mental disorder or having something like autism doesn't automatically mean that you can just say oh i'm not responsible for my actions so like the not criminally responsible defense relies on proving that the person is incapable of understanding the nature of what they're doing or incapable of appreciating the quality of the act and like knowing that it was wrong it's no nobody's saying well they don't understand the consequences of the action nor if it's right or wrong there's no decision making in that yeah and you've already said that you made the decision Yeah, he's never denied that it happened and that he was the one behind the wheel. That's not in question. Yeah. So because of all the differing interviews, like all the different statements that he made to different psychiatrists and stuff, obviously the defense was able to use this and the crown too. But the biggest one was questions arose about like the validity of the testimony and documentation provided by the female psychiatrist, Dr. Chohan. Yeah. And also competing definitions of where Manassian actually sat on the autism spectrum and to what severity that could have played into his decision to drive on the sidewalk and kill a bunch of people. Just because we call it a spectrum, it's not to be confused that it's just this linear line that's a sliding scale. It's more like a color wheel with tons of dots. You could have any number of different variations of mental, physical, emotional capabilities or limitations. So there's no cookie cutter response to what someone with autism will or will not do or what they will or will not exhibit because everybody is different. Exactly. And so they were cross-examining all of the different people that he had spoken to just to kind of like see where the similarities were, I think. Because, of course, you're, you always are going to behave, no matter who you are, a little bit differently, depending on who you talk to, how questions are posed to you, even just the energy that that person gives off. So there, there was just a lot of, there was a lot of back and forth just about how the interactions were. Yeah. And what the differing diagnoses or different evaluations from each person were. Huh. So okay. this is kind of where we got to where... You were mentioning earlier, and then I said that we would talk about it later, but this is kind of when they find out that Elliot Rogers in the 2014 incident was not the first time that he had felt radicalized or that had he had had those kind of thoughts. The court hears that he told more than one doctor being when he was being interviewed that he had fantasized about shooting up his school in high school. 
Yeah. Yeah. And apparently he just didn't know how to get his hands on a gun. And he had also been talking about, oh, it wasn't just going to be random. Like the people that I liked would live and the ones that I didn't would die. Yeah. That one seemed like he didn't go through with it because logistically it was too difficult. Yeah. And his father, Vahi, did you say that's how you pronounce it? Vahi? I think so. Yeah. Because it's yeah. V-A-H-E. That's how I, that's what I, thought I think it's, yeah. yeah. That's what I thought too. He testified on the stand and said he had absolutely no knowledge of his son's interest in the incel community, his obsession with the 2014 murder committed by Elliot Roger, or even that he was, like, super lonely and had extreme anxiety about starting his job. His dad testified that he didn't even really know if what Alec was telling doctors was true because he... Kind of like what you were saying earlier, he was saying, I'm not even confident that he can ask a girl out in public due to his condition he was very kind of shy saying, very nervous very yeah he was confidence. kind of saying like you know he's saying that he was turned down by these girls at these parties and that's what convinced him to do this and i don't even think he could ask girls out at parties okay but then no, no. again i can actually clarify mm. this you just totally triggered my memory no okay oh. so elliot roger has a manifesto that he wrote and in his story he goes to a party and meets these girls and gets rejected and so he takes it on in his own story and uses it, that it was in the manifesto yeah, and it wasn't even his. He just wanted to be like yeah, Elliot no. Roger. Yeah, because I read about the Elliot Roger manifesto and that he was, like, obsessed with reading it, like, in totally. the week up to, leading up to this. So it was just in that, he I didn't He had, know like, that. woven their two stories together. So where he didn't have the experiences to support the behavior that he was exhibiting, it's like he put in the real-life experience of this Elliot Roger guy who maybe was really struggling to date and you know things like that like maybe he really did have those experiences he was just like control c control v yeah i'll put this here no that doesn't sound like me i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna change this like i hate that i'm laughing so hard at myself for that joke that wasn't funny i think it was funny i'm i'm gonna say i'm so happy we did this one together because there was so much to go through yeah and i think that there was a benefit that you're a reader and i'm a listener so we got very different information which was kind of neat true i am a reader oddly enough when did that happen okay so this is kind of when we're gonna get into i'm just gonna start so relying solely on autism spectrum disorder so asd i'm just gonna refer to it as asd going forward because that's the proper term oh yeah sorry i never clarified that earlier you're exactly right it is asd they're all like I don't I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that Asperger's is not a diagnosis that is used often anymore. You're just it is not. It is a classification a f- on the scale, on the AS, on like the spectrum. Yeah, and again, we're not so, saying that this is just like some little line where you like like push it and you're like, oh, there you are. No. Uh, and I'm not an expert, but, and I could be wrong on this, but my understanding is they took the characteristics that go along with Asperger's and put them onto the spectrum so that those can be characteristics that fall within that diagnosis. Well, okay. but okay. so 
Using it as a not criminally responsible defense is so extremely rare that a forensic psychiatrist retained by the defense actually told the court that he had not heard of it ever being done. No. Evidence presented at the trial actually prompted Autism Canada and Autism Ontario to release statements expressing concern that the defense was going to lead to negative stereotypes about autism or cause people to wrongly associate autism with violence. Mm -hmm. A statement released by Autism Ontario said, quote, autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder characterized by social impairments and difficulty inferring the thoughts, feelings, and emotions of others. It is not characterized by violence or lack of a moral compass. In reality, people on the autism spectrum and with other disabilities are much more likely to be victims of crime rather than the perpetrators. Much too often when a person is diagnosed as autistic, their actions are examined exclusively through that lens without considering the broader picture of other influencing factors on the whole person. This is demeaning to everyone. So they're basically saying we're still individuals. We're not all the same. Everything that we do isn't just, oh, well, they have autism. That's just a part of who these people are. Yeah, and I mean, I think we're even guilty of it right now, saying, like, these people. Anyone who's watched Love on the Spectrum, you know that a lot of people on the spectrum do perceive their autism as a strength, as it should be. Yeah, absolutely. I think so, too. And I think it's just learning how to, like, change your vocabulary, because I think that we just grow up speaking on it a certain way and even if I mean something different and I'm still learning um so obviously there's just more to the defense is all I was trying to say than just not being criminally responsible because of autism so this the defense spun it and they what they were arguing is that because of his autism he never developed empathy and therefore the lack of empathy left him incapable of rational choice And the Crown countered this by referring to various statements that he had made when he said he knew that killing was morally wrong. Because they have all these tapes on him. They have so much recorded tape that they can use. Oh yeah, and he was just verbal diarrhea. He wasn't holding anything back. (laughs) Not at all. No. So this trial started November 2020 and on March 3rd, 2021, which is just over a week ago today, Justice Anne Malloy rejected the defense's argument in a decision that was actually streamed live on YouTube due to COVID. You um, go, this girl. is super rare. You go, girl. Alex Manassian was found guilty of all 10 counts of first degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. Like, sentencing and stuff happens at a later date, but he will more than likely be sentenced to the maximum life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. Totally. Yeah, I can't Uh, see how he'd get anything less than that. Well, I think they can stack those as well if they choose to, so he could potentially never have um, the possibility. Yeah, I, like, I thought I heard that he had gotten life sentences for all of them already, but the question was, yeah, if they were going to be consecutive or concurrent. Exactly, yeah. Consecutive or concurrent, so stacked or just one. Yeah. One Basically, after another, are they the going to be served? Yeah, at the same time or one after another. Exactly. We got this, yeah. and it was just how it I mean, was going to be dished out was the question at hand. Yeah. Just keep, just, just fucking keep him. Yeah, I don't foresee him getting out regardless, even if he only gets them, if he runs them consecutively or sorry, concurrently. Yeah then I yes. still don't think he'll get approved for parole at 25 years. And if he does, then maybe he'll be out. But I think he'll still need to live in some type of 
halfway house or assisted living of some kind for to make sure his yeah. mental health is monitored. Or at least yeah. I would hope, but who knows. I'm going to ask you this, because uh, it's important. Um, Ten people died here today. Um, Fifteen people were seriously injured. Um, I think it's important to ask how you feel about that. I feel like uh, I accomplished my mission. You feel like you accomplished your mission? Yes. Okay. If the families of those people who were murdered and who were injured were in this room right now, what would you say to them? I honestly don't know what I would say. Would you apologize? I honestly don't know. With, so Justice Malloy referred to him as Mr. Doe. We kind of said that <laughs> earlier. That's why I like didn't want to say his name throughout this, but then I kind of ended up just doing it anyway. But yeah, me too. She referred to him as Mr. Doe in her decision over live stream to avoid giving him f- further notoriety. Basically, just she just wanted a little extra fuck you. In her decision, she says it does not matter that he does not have remorse nor empathize with the victims. Lack of empathy for the suffering of victims, even an incapacity to empathize for whatever reason, does not constitute a defense under Section 16 of the Criminal Code. She said, in a legal context. ASD could be considered a mental disorder in a potential NCR defense under Section 16, as it does meet the criteria, but it is up to the defense to establish on a balance of probabilities that the client is incapable of knowing that his actions were morally wrong. So, yeah, basically she did say, and this is a huge concern for the autism community, and they've written that they are concerned about this, she did say that ASD could be considered factor that like a mental disorder under section 16 like could it be used under that defense yes but in this instance it did not meet the balance of probabilities that he was incapable of knowing that his actions were morally wrong but what the autism community is saying is that even raising that possibility that it could be used in that kind of a defense is concerning. They're just saying it like raises further issues that one day it could happen all over again. Um, well, and they said it was but, because too this case kind of set a precedence, right? No one yeah. had ever actually tried to use this defense, so she had to go and reach out to multiple sources to find out like what the characteristics of autism were, yeah. how it can affect them, and their choices and their thinking process to be able to even make an educated decision and they say that the fact that she even entertained the idea set a precedent that we could see more mental health diagnoses being brought into the courtroom and tried to be used as like you said outs for these major crimes where we have to be really careful that we don't fall back on letting crimes pass because someone has a disability of any kind it's just, yeah. it's like oh i was drunk i didn't mean to well it doesn't mean you didn't do it you still did it you still need to be held accountable so i think we just yeah. need to case by case it and one thing i did want to mention about the john doe thing is part of the reason why i shouldn't want to give him all the credit to is because he was just in this for all the notoriety because he was also obsessed with this like kill count website that he watched constantly he even remembered the exact day that he logged on to it for the first time he was so obsessed and he 
realized that he wanted to be at the top of that list. And he said his goal was to take out a hundred people that day and whatnot. But he, like you said, he wasn't successful, but this was good enough in his book. The fact that he wanted all the fame, that's why she was like, I refuse to give you that. Yeah, it was like part of why he did it. Yeah, because he wanted but, to be at the top I mean, of that leaderboard. From a legal standpoint, I do understand why she made the decision that she made. I think that if you look at it from an opposite perspective, saying that it couldn't have anything to do with something like that is also dangerous because every situation and circumstance is completely different and you can't just pull it from possibilities entirely, you know? Like, I... I I don't know. But I also... I'm not somebody who is in that community at all, and so I don't really get an opinion. Well, I think there's also just an element of unknown on everyone's party, including the person living through it. You could get diagnosed with an ailment and know exactly what the consequences are, what the side effects are, what your symptoms are. But I think in any overwhelmingly traumatic experience for the first time, you'd never know what to expect, even in your own behavior. Yeah. So I think it's... But yeah, so I am going to link all the articles. I, I honestly don't want to talk too much more about it because I'm not educated enough in this topic no, to really continue making any statements. We probably sound like assholes. And we I was going to say, I probably sound like an asshole already and have said more than enough. But I but just definitely... wanted to talk about it still because it's still important. There's a really beautiful CBC News clip that's made. Dorothy Sewell, 80 years old. She was, she was like, she was always there to talk to. And I know she was such a good person, so wherever she is now, she's she's probably watching her sports still and having, being a good person, so. Anne-Marie D'Amico, 30 years old. She's one of those, uh, humanitarians that really cared about her community, cared about her, the people she worked with. She she just went way beyond about a lot of things. And so sometimes when I, I feel a little bit uh, one of those five stages of uh, grief, which is anger, I look it down on that and just basically say, yeah, what would she do? And then we end up kind of answering a lot of the questions. Renuka Aramasinga. 45. She's like a, very close to me, like my own sister. I miss her so much. She, I, I'm telling you, she didn't deserve to die. Mary Elizabeth Betty Forsyth, 94. She was a very funny, funny person. Um, you know, she had her very, very sharp for a 94-year-old and very active. She was walking up and down Young Street every day. So he Chung, 22. I thought I was like accepting it pretty well in the beginning, but these days it's, I think it's harder for me to actually think and accept the fact that she's actually gone forever. Chalmin Eddie Kang, 45. Eddie is, 
he is like a child, but in a cool way. He's a, he has this childlike faith in whatever he does. He has this zeal that uh, I wish I can have. Jin Han Kim, 22. Statement about Jin Han Kim, who was known by friends and professors as June and was often seen with a smile on her face while being remembered as a beacon of positivity and happiness. Manir Najjar, 85. His welcoming smile and warm embrace will be remembered by many for a long, long time to come. Andrea Braden, 33. Andrea Braden was an account executive at Gartner, a worldwide research company and consulting company. She lived in Woodbridge. Geraldine Brady, 83. Regardless of whether she was well or not, cold winters or hot summers, Jerry always had a smile for me and a twinkle in her eye. Well, I think that's everything, but... Other than that, guys, yeah, I guess let us know what you thought of an episode where we do it together. This could even just be one-offs like this where it's a fairly large case or it's a large undertaking. So it's kind of a benefit for Mm -hmm. us to be able to split the workload. Yeah, that's it for me. Yeah, me too. I'll call you soon. Okay. (gasps) Okay. Bye. Bye. How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. (laughs) Fuck me.